Money FM 89.3, best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. And we're catching up with our friends at the BBC for the latest in the global headlines that you should be aware of. Rich Preston from the BBC joins us today. Hi, Rich. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Hi. Good to be with you again. We're talking about the G7 meetings, and that will be followed shortly after by the meeting of NATO leaders in Madrid as well. Lots on the agenda, I understand, Rich, and we've been headlining this practically all day. We're talking about Russia and Ukraine. They're pledging support for Ukraine, but also talking about ways to minimize the war's effect on rising global food and energy costs. How far are they expected to get, though, Rich? Well, that's such a tough question, especially when you talk about food, because Russia holds so many of the cards. You know, Ukraine is a huge agricultural exporter, uh, but lots of its products, tons and tons of wheat and grain, are held in silos in, ru- in ports that Russia controls. So uh, the G7 nations can try and reduce prices elsewhere, can try and bump up provision uh, from other parts of the world. But the fact of the matter is, much of the product they need is in Russia's hands. And this is having ripple effects everywhere. You know, we've heard the obvious stories of, you know, the effects in countries like Africa. Um, but even in your neck of the woods, uh, you know, Ukraine is a huge producer of fertilizer. Um, and the restriction and the limit suddenly on that product is hitting rice growers in Thailand, mm-hmm. you know, and their crops and their costs as well. So it really is having a global implications. Um, as you mentioned in your headlines just now, um, Olaf Scholz, the, the German minister, uh, German chancellor, sorry, has said that the G7 is going to apply even more uh, stringent sanctions on Moscow as punishment for its invasion of Ukraine. Now, they've applied lots of sanctions already. Arguably, what are any more going to do? It's a bit too little, too late. We'll have to go, uh, we'll have to wait and see what the specifics are. Um, there's obviously things around fossil fuels, uh, natural gas in particular, but also Russian gold. The US, the UK, Canada have said they will ban the import of Russian gold, saying that will uh, hit Moscow in the back pocket. We need to wait and see what the detail is. Uh, but Russia has found ways around it, you know, especially when you think of countries like China, which isn't getting on board with these sanctions. India as well. You know, lots of Russian oil is flowing to India from where it's then being sold on to other countries. Uh, Ditto Saudi Arabia. So one of the challenges the G7 has is not only staying unified against Moscow whilst prices are rising in their own countries, but it's getting other countries to get on board as well. Uh, Then there's, as you mentioned, this NATO summit a few days later. Now that's much more military strategy on the cards. That's more how does NATO protect its borders? How does it get heavy weaponry to Ukraine, which is of course not a NATO member. And then, of course, discussion around Sweden and Finland, which have applied to join NATO, which has been kind of accepted in principle. But Turkey, a current NATO member, has a problem with that because of Swedish and Finnish support for a group that Turkey considers a terrorist organization. So Ankara has said, we potentially don't have any problems in principle, but we need to talk about this first. So lots to discuss in the coming days. All right. So as, as much as they impose more sanctions on Russia, the rest of the world, they're suffering the effects of this as well, and I'm pretty sure Moscow knows that. So what will it take to get them to, well, back out of Ukraine if that's even on tables? 
Well, that's a very good question. I mean, uh, Moscow uh, defaulted on its foreign debt for the first time in decades, mm. uh, just in the last uh, you know, 12 hours or so. Um, President Putin is sticking to his guns, quite literally, on this one. Uh, and, of course, the line from the Kremlin is that this is, you know, Western conspiracy. This was all the plan all along to kind of freeze out uh, Russia and to expand NATO membership. Um, how long these sanctions can keep going for uh, is anyone's guess, because, of course, it is hitting Russians as well. You know, it is affecting life in Russia for ordinary Russians. So it's a bit of a, a game of political chicken. Here's the thing. Russia's neighbours are also fearing that NATO's defence plans are not fit for purpose and that they could be quickly overrun. So where exactly are we on this discussion? And it appears that at some point, all of these nations will have to do more than just discuss the issue because, frankly, the impact is being felt worldwide, isn't it? Especially when it comes to rising food prices and rising grain prices. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a problem because Ukraine, as we mentioned, is not a NATO member. And so NATO as an entity is restricted as to what it can do because it can't be seen to be supporting a non-NATO member as an organization. So it depends on individual countries doing things as individual countries. Uh, The US uh, has announced it's going to be purchasing an intense missile system, uh, a surface-to-air missile system, which it will be sending straight to Ukraine. And that's the kind of thing that Ukraine really wants. It wants this kind of heavy artillery uh, to fight back against the Russians. The real concern as well is in countries like Poland, which, of course, are on the periphery of NATO and which have seen bombs and bullets landing very close to their border when Russia has struck Western cities like Lviv. And until those bombs actually land in NATO territory, NATO's kind of limited as to what it can do. But what Ukraine wants it to do is for individual countries to stump up more cash as I say, as an individual, as individual countries, and send them the weapons they say they need. Okay, Rich, you're also watching out for the verdict in a case of a uh, well, 101-year-old former Nazi concentration camp guard. How significant is this uh, development? Yeah, it's significant, but also partly just symbolic. Now, this is the story of a man known as Joseph S. He's 101 years old. He's the oldest defendant to stand trial in one of these cases. He's accused of assisting in the murders of more than 3,500 prisoners at a camp near Berlin. He's specifically accused of being complicit in the shooting of Soviet prisoners of war. Now, it used to be the case that cases like his couldn't be heard. You used to have to prove direct participation in a murder to be charged with these war crimes. But ten years ago, the conviction of another SS guard set a precedent and changed that. So Joseph S., 101 years old now, but 21 when he became a guard in the camp. Tens of thousands of people died there. Now, prosecutors say he supported the murders knowingly and willingly, and that's really what this hangs on. That's what they had to prove to the jury in the case last year. Families of those killed were present during the hearings, even some of those Uh, survivors of the camp. Joseph S. himself refused to give evidence. If it's a guilty verdict, it's expected that there wouldn't be a prison sentence because of his age. Uh, 101 years old, too old to send to prison. So this is partly symbolic. Right. Something that is not symbolic, however, is something closer to home. On Thursday, the president-elect of the Philippines, Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos, is expected to take his oath of office as the country's 17th president. We know that he is a polarizing figure. And in the lead-up to the election, it was noted that he had very few clearly enunciated policy proposals. But he's made some progress on that, hasn't he? So what exactly can we expect here? 
Yeah, this, this is an interesting one because obviously it's the return of power in the Philippines to the Marcos family, which was ousted nearly 40 years ago, mired in corruption scandals. Um, but the current president, Rodrigo Duterte, his family's not entirely leaving office. He's stepping down, but his daughter, Sara Duterte, is going to be the vice president. So mm-hmm. two political dynasties there working together. Now, one of the things they've said they will do is continue Rodrigo Duterte's infamous war on drugs. Now, he says this has been a huge success. He's taken drug dealers and drug users off the streets. The United Nations says as many as 27,000 people have died in killings, including innocent people, including in extrajudicial killings. Um, so a highly controversial topic in the Philippines. Mr. Duterte has said he will never, ever apologize for the death. Now, Bongbong Marcos has said he'll continue this policy, but using less violent methods. They've also said they're going to tackle corruption, which, given the Marcos family history, is a bold claim. And it's unclear <laughs> as to how they're going to do that, because, you know, the Marcos family embezzled about 10 to 15 billion dollars of state assets. Um, and only a third of those have been tracked down. The, the mess. The rest remain missing. Um, he's also promised he's going to work for the people. You know, that's why one of that's one of the reasons the Marcos family has remained so popular throughout the Philippines. But one of the big concerns is about the future of democracy in the country. You know, the Marcos family was always open about its hostility to the media, and there were lots of accusations during Bong Bong's campaign of disinformation and the abuse of social media. And it's unclear how that's going to continue when he holds the office of president. Well, let's uh, have a look at the foreign policy because a lot of, uh, well, pretty much the Western world is worried about uh, the Philippines taking on a more independent foreign policy and perhaps pivoting even closer uh, to China. Yeah, well, obviously China's been a huge concern in the region. You know, China's kind of presence in the South China Sea, asserting its claims on waters that the Philippines claims as its own. Mm-hmm. Now, Rodrigo Duterte was always quite outspoken about that, and he did stand up to China. But one of the reasons Bongbong was seen as uh, being so popular amongst voters um, was the way he could kind of smooth over those cracks with China. He would kind of stand firm against them, but also would be happy to do deals in the background. Now, the Philippines, obviously, a huge industry of theirs is fishing. And what they don't want is they don't want to lose that aspect of their industry. They ultimately don't really mind if they have a bit of Chinese military presence in their waters, as long as they can keep their fishing economy buoyant, if you pardon the pun. Um, so one of the things uh, Bong Bong Marcus is going to be doing is he's going to have to be getting immediately into conversations with Beijing and trying to see how the two countries can work together without rattling the cage of the likes of America, Australia, Japan, other big players in the region. Thank you very much for that, Rich. Really appreciate your updates on this and your analysis of what's to come as well. Rich Preston, senior world news reporter and presenter at the BBC. Thanks, guys. Good to talk to you. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.